Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I can't Imagine, Michael, where we will be as they go to the polls at 7 a.m. tomorrow. What is that, 2 a.m. We'll, New we'll, York time? We, we will not be sitting here at, uh, at 2 a.m., but no. No, um, but it's just ext- <laughs> extraordinary. It is going to be extraordinary, and it, I, it has transfixed the whole country, uh, including our guest, uh, nice enough to stop by, uh, Lord John Brown, Baron Brown of Mattingly, uh, the former head of British Petroleum. Uh, you have obviously many insights into what you think the economic and the corporate impact of this would be. But I think the most interesting things that I've read, you, you've written emotionally about your ties to the United Kingdom and the importance of a united Europe. Uh, so many people have talked about the economic impact and the uncertainty that I felt that uh, my voice wouldn't add too much to that. But I I did feel that I knew something about the emotional ties that bind, and it's very important to say that, that uh, keeping people behaving as an inclusive set of people is essential. My background as uh, the child of uh, someone who survived Auschwitz, a Hungarian woman, Uh, married to a a British soldier, reminded me always that Europe needs to be a place where nationalism, bad nationalism, is dampened down, because that's the precursor for trouble. There is a confidence among leavers when these topics are brought up, these delicate topics of another time. I say that with immense respect for the people of London. Just outside our studios here, folks, is a beautiful square, which was the archery field of Tudor times, and then was buildings and such, and three bombs fell just within 40, 50 feet of our Bloomberg entryway here in 1940-41. There's a certitude it can't happen again. These are the unspokens. How do you respond to people certain of a calmer Europe? You can't be certain. You really can't be certain of anything, especially with the number of people involved nowadays uh, of different backgrounds, diversity. And the main point about diversity is it's very healthy to have different opinions, different people, but you need to pull them together. You need something that binds them, includes them, And one of those has to be continual peace, which is a precursor for prosperity. I don't think you can be certain about that. You've got to work at it. The European Union basically founded as an economic organization to try to rebuild after the war, but evolved into a way to keep countries united, the feeling being if they were united economically, they wouldn't have as much reason. Correct. Well, it's Uh, to stop stop the ancient disputes over coal and iron. Uh, Do you think that... It has worked uh, enough that, I mean, you say you can't be certain, but you look at the trade ties between two, con- two historical enemies like Germany and France. Uh, have they been tied together enough economically now that uh, the old Europe of the 20th century and earlier is gone? Well, I think so. I think a lot of the disputes have not been uh, to the point of extreme breakdown. There have been plenty of disputes between members of the European Union and the UK. 
but in the end, uh, they have a they have a certainly at least a common trade purpose, uh, and a very important set of places that they can talk to each other, and therefore it calms things down uh, and keeps people together. Now, you do approach this also from the point of view of a business person, and there are uh, a number of business people who make the argument that. Uh, despite the ties between the UK and the continent now, or maybe in, in spite of the ties, uh, things are not uh, as good under uh, EU management now because power is devolving towards Brussels in a bureaucratic way that ultimately harms the interests of UK business. I think the vast number of business people would say that's not the case on balance. Clearly, everybody has a specific gripe with one uh, standard or regulation or another. The vast bulk of these regulations, in my opinion, have been involved with consumer protection and safety and health, uh, but there are things that annoy everybody. But the real point is, I think, on balance, is it good or bad? Has it opened up standards to allow things to move freely across borders? The answer is, mm. I think, yes. Uh, I think if we were really, I believe as a nation, we should, we should take uh, a very active, even more active role in the technocratic management of uh, the EU. We have, for example, uh, as the UK, a 16% uh, of the economic output of Europe. Uh, but yet we only have 4% of the bureaucrats. Uh, you mentioned that. You want more people to go to Brussels? I think so. I think there's a different attitude. It's about diversity, and I think we should uh, at least mm -hmm. match, I think, it the, seems to me, the French and the Italians. One of the questions the uh, Leave side raises, though, is where does Brussels go from here, that it is inherent in a bureaucracy to try to not only maintain itself but expand, and that there will be an ever greater uh, effort to uh, assume power to a central European authority? Not necessarily. I mean, I, I don't think anything is as uh, clear-cut as that. It's up to the decision-makers uh, mm. to make it uh, clear what it's doing. And, and I think there are very few nations that want to actually make themselves less productive by right. having unnecessary regulation. If we were to put you on the surveillance Gulfstream today and fly you up to Aberdeen, to the British Petroleum offices in Aberdeen, by the River Dee, north, northwest, rather, of Aberdeen. What would you say to the employees of BP today who are on the fence? They're undecided. They've got sympathies to leave. They have sympathies to remain. Well, what would be your message? <clears throat> being in Scotland, I think a lot of people there would, would be want remain. to remain. Because yeah. uh, they see the need to be a separate nation within a, a wider framework. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, and I think in Scotland that would be the case. But I think most people would say, look, it's, it's worked pretty well so far. Uh, it hasn't got in the way of the things that uh, uh, BP would want to do, I, I would suggest in my experience. Uh, and therefore, why would, why, why would you want to open up this incredibly costly uncertainty for the future? Uh, and mm -hmm. it's a bit like, I mean, I hate drawing analogies between uh, politics and business. But as a business person, you would never want to open up a gap of uncertainty uh, of such extreme amounts, say, well, it's going to take me a couple of years to figure out what to do. I think you would be punished rather severely no. by the markets. Uh, you you uh, were the uh, former head of BP, and now you're working for uh, some uh, funds and uh, keeping track, I'm sure, of what is going on in the world. We're in this unusual period 
where we don't know what's happening with the British referendum. And we don't know what is happening with the Fed, in part because we're waiting for some data, and probably we'll get a little bit better view once we get the next jobs report in the U.S. So I compared it to that airplane that they take astronauts up and it dives down, and all of a sudden everybody's waitlist for a few minutes. We're kind of in that waitlist for a few minutes period in the markets. Suppose we land, Le you know, leaving out the Brexit vote. What is your take on the rest of the world? economy, on corporate earnings, on the outlook, uh, what should investors be thinking about, um, you know, if, if and when we get back to some sort of a status quo? So a big question. I, uh, let me tell you about the sector I'm, I'm in, first of all. I think people are looking at uh, uh, the energy business and saying uh, unusual future coming up, uh, but oil feeling a bit better now because there's a lot of disruption. It's not actually to do with fundamentals of supply and demand. It's to do with political disruption. And I think that's a theme everywhere. People are wondering exactly where the decision makers want to go. Brexit is an example of that. Uh, the outcome of the U.S. election is clearly going, is, is putting a damper on people's views of what's going to happen in NAFTA generally. Uh, and people are still accommodating to the changes in the way in which uh, the Chinese uh, government is thinking about its future and the mix of growth that it wants for the future. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty uh, which is uh, on the horizon here. Uh, people, I think, can see a pathway through it, but uh, many people are still waiting to see. If you were still in the executive suite, based on that, would you be advising your corporate treasurer to pull in his horns and uh, wait things out? No, because normally I think uh, great uh, advances are made at a time of maximum uncertainty. Obviously, you've got to control risk, uh, but I think uh, going home at a time of maximum uncertainty when you're in a business that uh, has uh, opportunities is, I think, the wrong way to go. So you've got to balance the risks, but it seems to me uh, you take a view, you know, about your industry or take a view about energy energy clearly will continue to grow, oil will have a role in that, gas will have a bigger role in it, uh, and you need to position yourself in the right assets for the future, low the, cost. The polarization in the United States, in the United Kingdom, between the elites, and I'm putting executives in that group as well, and the people, I believe I've never seen it like it is right now, is part of that executive compensation is part of that the foolishness of the past 20 years the ratios that people throw out i mean there's the answer is yes to, to an extent uh, i think people are very allergic to what they appear to see as cronyism you know people uh, like each other agreeing with each other and they're allergic to to a lack of transparency if it's too complicated nobody understands it therefore you will mistrust it. Executive compensation has fallen into both those, those buckets and has produced, I think, uh, answers that for, for people generally uh, are unbelievable. You know, when, what does uh, Prime Minister Cameron have to do in the next 25, 24 hours to reconnect with the people? He's desperate out there. We could see that with Lord Major. 
uh, this morning up, I believe it was in Bristol. I, I hope there's uh, uh, statements not only about uh, the economy, which is very, very important, uncertainty, very, very important, but also emotion. In the end, uh, we have to believe that including in Europe is a good thing for the UK, and he needs to say that. You uh, mentioned uh lack of confidence in where leaders around the world want to take us. Uh, and we began by talking about um, the historical emotion around this issue. And I'm wondering if you take it even farther back. And uh, do, you, do you think, as we did in the 1930s, we have leaders who may not be up to the task? I think it's, I expect we always say that. You know, whatever generation there is, there's probably people saying the leaders aren't up to the task. I think leaders today are more scrutinized than they ever have been, uh, and as a result, they uh, apparently feel boxed in. Everything they say, everything they do is scrutinized in a way which it wasn't in the past, but people are getting used to it. It has to be a different way of leading. I do think, however, that there is no substitute for having a very clear understanding of the direction mm. you want to go in, and you have to be uncompromising in that to an extent. Uh, but, but really uncompromising, and you have to take, no. therefore, the criticism you get. Chairman Brown, thank you so much for coming. And Lord Brown, of course, formerly with uh, BP, and decidedly uh, asking his United Kingdom to uh, remain. Well, we are continuing to follow, of course, the UK referendum, but as we were noting with Lord Brown, it is not the only issue out there for investors, particularly in Europe. A lot going on on the yeah. continent that will come front and center as the year goes on. It, we really are trying, folks, to be the proverbial fair and balanced. But you are so right, Mike, that there's a lot more out there. Whether it's disinflation, deflation, you mentioned Spain yesterday. You've got an election coming up on Sunday in Spain with implications, election in the fall, a vote in the fall in Italy. Uh, much going on. Midge Raman has to keep track of it all for Eurasia Group. He's their chief European analyst, and he joins us now here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Uh, Midge, beyond uh, – well, we have the Spanish vote on Sunday, so it is the next thing, shall we say, beyond Brexit. But – what is likely the, to be the most important issue facing the European Union uh, with or without Great Britain for the rest of the year? Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. I mean, look, it, it, it's depressing to have to talk about the same thing over and over again. But the fact is the economics still look fairly bad. I mean, you've mentioned Spain and the elections um, on Sunday. I think both in Spain, also Portugal, perhaps in France later in the year, these states are all going to have to do a fairly sizable fiscal correction because despite favorable external economic, let's say, dynamics, the governments are basically rolling back on fiscal policy and structural reform. So there's a big debate to be had on fiscal correction in Southern Europe. That, the can has been kicked, as, as, we, as, we, as we often say, but that is going to come to a head, I think, in Q3. I think if you look at the monetary policy side, things are also fairly bad, right? I mean, inflation just refuses to move in line with the ECB's target. And now you have a more complicated dynamic between Mario Draghi and Angela Merkel, 
essentially, I think Merkel views Draghi's ultra-loose monetary policy as a risk as a risk to her re-election next year. So you've got a more right-wing hawkish stance coming out of Germany via the ECB that also constrains Draghi on monetary policy. So both fiscal and monetary policy look bad. That's the start of the conversation. There's a course a lot more that you've also mentioned, refugee crisis, well, constitutional reform in Italy. You, you mentioned the idea of fiscal issues for these countries. Basically, what you're saying is they're still going to exceed their EU budget targets and they're going to have to uh, cut spending even further. Austerity is not over. Absolutely. I mean, in Spain, the, the, correct, the, the, the fiscal correction that Brussels and Berlin are likely to impose in a worst-case scenario could be 1% of GDP in the order of 15 billion euros, right? I mean, in Portugal, you've got a three-way coalition government that, as you've said, is also not in line with its EU-mandated fiscal targets. They're going to have to cut spending, raise taxes. I mean, that's the debate in Greece as well. I think also in France, Italy's a little better, but as you've said, I mean, if you look at the local elections this Sunday, the populist five-star movement did really well. They not only won Rome, they won Turin, they won Milan. There's a chance, not not non-negligible, that in an early election scenario, or indeed in 2018, the five-star could win power in Italy. That would be terrible for Italy and terrible for, for, for economics, not only in Italy, but the broader euro area. Mitch Rahman works with Ian Bremmer at Eurasia Group. And he's someone important to speak to because he's actually worked on both Death Stars. He's worked for the United Kingdom government in Treasury. He's also worked at the European Commission's Directorate General, or I guess I'm supposed to say General, for Economic and Financial Affairs. Midge, what's the difference between getting business done in London and getting business done in Brussels? It's a lot. It's a lot easier to get business done in London, Tom. In Brussels, there's a there's a lot of politics, a lot of bureaucracy. That was that was certainly my experience from from working in the European Commission. That being said, despite the, the let's say the slow pace with which Europe advances, you do ultimately see concrete agreements over areas that are, of course, extremely challenging. The refugee deal is a good example. Greece's bailout is a good example. Now, none of these things are perfect. I'm not claiming that at all. But it does demonstrate that some form of collective action involving a large number of states is still possible, despite the politics and despite the bureaucracy. The uh, thing that interested me in your latest note is that uh, there are still uh, peripheral countries. I mean, everybody follows Greece, but still peripheral uh, countries, including Portugal uh, and even um, we, we talked about Spain, that are, there are questions about what happens to the government there and what happens to their uh, access to financial markets still. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the problem is a lot of these countries went through a very front-loaded fiscal adjustment, right, after the debt crisis in 2010 through 12. And that very aggressive fiscal tightening has totally decimated the politics in Southern Europe. It's almost impossible now for any of these countries to produce a single-party government, a majority government. Instead, you're looking at coalition parties where you have two or three different, different political parties in the mix, and they themselves, because they have different ideologies, different policy priorities, they simply can't agree on a mandate for reform. You're seeing that in Spain, we're seeing it in Portugal, it's clearly the case in Greece. And at some point that does become a question regarding access to financial markets. Well, uh, does it become a question this year? 
No, look, I think the, the, the thing we're most concerned about, I would say now, when we look at, you know, post the Brexit vote, as, as you'll know, our view is Brexit won't happen. So when we look over the landscape, one country we're very concerned about is Italy. I mean, we had the local election result. As I, as I say, the five-star movement did extremely well. We're very concerned about the extent to which they're going to improve their standing over the next few years. If, if Renzi doesn't manage to pass this constitutional reform in October, I think that will probably result in the collapse in the government. If he does get the system he wants and calls early elections, there's still a chance the five-star movement could win under that new system. And of course, what happens in Italy is massively consequential for the euro area and the EU. I think basically the Europeans have come to the understanding well, that at some point they may lose Greece. So I don't think Greece would be a shock, but Italy, I mean, that's a completely different question. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, that really speaks to the unspoken, at least as I see the British press, totally uh, Anglo-Saxon centric. If they vote leave in the United Kingdom, that's got to be a huge signal to four or five other larger countries within Europe, right? Absolutely, Tom. And I think that's part of the reason why we believe if the UK does vote to leave, the, the, the process of renegotiating its relationship with the EU in terms of trade, economics, yeah. access to the single market, the French and the Germans are going to make sure that's a painful process precisely to disincentivize Eurosceptics in other countries from looking to do the same thing as the UK. I, I, to me, just is, is there amazing, any country that uh, would be likely to do that to follow on, uh, or is that more of a red herring? No, I don't, look, I don't think it's a red head herring. I think the countries we're very concerned about are the Netherlands. You know, look, ex extricating the UK from the EU will be painful, but at the same time, you know, we're not a member of the Euro area. We don't. We're not a member of the Schengen area. We have opt-outs and a whole host of other policy areas. If you lost a country like the Netherlands, founding member of the EU, obviously involved in the euro area, involved in all of the EU's other integration initiatives, that would be a lot more painful. That's what I think core Europe is concerned about. I think if you look further east in Poland and Hungary, there's obviously a big concern. There you have right-wing populist governments in power. I'm talking about peace in Poland, Fidesz in Hungary. These guys are also, I think, are, are Eurosceptics and will look to look at what happens with the UK to decide ultimately what mm -hmm. they want to do regarding the EU right. forward. Is America... A Eurosceptic? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think America is skeptical about how the Europeans do some of their business, but they fundamentally believe that the European bloc has been beneficial for peace, prosperity, trade, and economics. Of, of course, certain things could work better, but I definitely think the view across the Atlantic is we're a, we're a safer, more prosperous world with the EU than we would be without it. There's an argument uh, being made in the campaign here that the Europeans would make it particularly painful for the UK to leave in order to set an example yeah, he just said for that. other yeah, countries. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think that, though, would be? I do. I do. I mean, look, I, I think there's, a, there's little or no incentive for the rest of the union to give the UK a nice deal outside, because all you're going to do then is energize the Front National ahead of presidential elections next okay. year you're going to energize the alternative for deutschland so but wait wait, wait. What, what does this mean concretely does this mean that the claridges is not going to have brie cheese for me yeah. i mean what does it what does it mean when you say they're going to make it hard for prime minister johnson so, so so tom look i mean 
we, we as the UK do a, a huge amount of our trade with the rest of the EU. As a share of GDP, it far dwarfs any of the trade I know. We do. Sir James Dyson had that chart today in the Times. I get that. Right. So then I think, so look, I think the point is, in order to maintain that level of trade and access to the single market, the Europeans are essentially going to say, you've got to continue paying into the EU budget, so there will be fiscal transfers from the UK to the EU, and you have to also agree to free movement of labor. Now, there are two conditions certainly Johnson will not be able to support, right? He's going to want to limit free movement. He's not going to want to send fiscal transfers to to the EU budget. But that, that I think, will then come at a cost to access to the single market in terms of tariffs and non-tariff barriers. That would have a big impact on the real economy in the UK. I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin can't get brie cheese. Is that going to be the issue? (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, I... I, we, we've been pounded here, uh, Midge, by different opinions, starkly different opinions on the what if. I, you know, folks, I listen to Olivier Blanchard, and they're saying things, life will go on. You don't believe life will go on? No, I, I, think, I think life will go on, but I think there will be a large amount of uncertainty, certainly for the two years while the renegotiation happens. And that net-net where the UK ends up, via via the EU, will be less beneficial than where it sits today as a full member. Now, life will still go on. I think, of course, you know, we're an industrious country. We have a large financial services sector. There's a tremendous amount of talent, human capital, ingenuity, innovation in London and in this country more broadly. Of course, that would continue. But Mm. via via the EU, via via the EU institutions, in terms of our trade with Europe, I think there we would suffer. This has been brilliant. Thank you. Our goal is to be balanced. We thank Bree Taylor, Rachel Wurstbanner, our entire team for killing themselves to give you a good perspective of remain and leave. He has been exceptionally articulate for the leave campaign. John Longworth associated with the Chamber of Commerce of this nation and associated with entrepreneurship, um, has given his perspective and joins us again. John, good morning. What did you wake up thinking about today? What was your leave to-do list, your action plan for these final 24 hours? Well, clearly the, the leave campaign will be focusing on getting out the vote for the leave people. Uh, focusing on the various ways in that can be done. I'm personally uh, focusing on uh, media and many of my uh, business associates within the Leave campaign are out literally campaigning on doorsteps around the country. Is this, uh, we're, we're at the point, I would imagine, where you're not really hoping to convince anybody because people have made up their mind, but the important thing is to make sure they do get out and vote. Yeah, I mean, there are still uh, reported uh, quite high levels of uh, people who haven't made up their mind. In fact, I gave a speech to a very large conference of financial advisors yesterday. The audience consisted of nearly 300 people. And when I asked for a show of hands of who has not decided, a very significant number of people put up their hands. So it is still important to communicate with the people who haven't decided. But for the campaigns clearly getting the vote out of those who have right. is more important. In Mike stunning yesterday, Charles Duma of Lombard Street Research was heated that he's undecided. Well, I'm wondering what you're finding 
in ter- what, what is the most successful argument you're finding for the Leave side? There are many different economic analyses. And, you know, which one, if you're, if you're not an economist, which one do you want to believe? You know, how do you make that decision? So what do you, what do you try to sell people on? Well, you're absolutely right, of course. There's been a plethora of information from all the various campaigns on the economics, and people generally are confused about that, although I'm very clear that we've uh, made major progress on the economic arguments. Linton Crosby reported in the press that our ratings on the economic arguments have gone up 20 points in uh, only a few weeks, and we're very, very close now to the remain side on the economic arguments. But my, I say to people simply this, you know, as a business person, do I want somebody else to run my business or do I want to run my business myself? Because that's the choice we're facing. We're facing being on the periphery of a Eurozone that will make all the decisions where we will pay the bills, swallow the regulations and have no freedom to act. Whereas if we take back control of our own economy and our own affairs, then we can make the decisions ourselves uh, and in a very uncertain world, it's very right. important to be flexible. How do you respond to John Lord Brown saying United Kingdom is 16 percent of the story and yet has only 4 percent of the bureaucrats in Brussels? If you lose this campaign, do you want to see more U.K. bodies in Brussels helping the bureaucrats? Well, first of all, we're not going to lose the campaign. Britain's going to leave the European Union the second uh, thing, however, is that should, uh, should we fa- find ourselves in that situation, uh, we will be watching, and the business community will be watching extremely closely as to how the European project develops, because it's undoubtedly a political project. I mean, that's been admitted openly. It was suggested by a previous president of the Commission, Delors. I was on a platform with, a previ- with the immediate previous president of the European Commission, uh, Barossa, only last week, and put the question to him directly, and it was absolutely the case that he said that that was, uh, that was the case. So, as a political project, the business community will be watching very closely, because the economic and business uh, interests come a poor second place. With us, John Longworth. He is a strong supporter, active supporter. He's committed time and treasure to the Leave campaign. I don't have an opinion, folks, remain or leave. I do have an opinion that the best short essay I've seen was in today's The Times of London, Sir James Dyson. Full disclosure, I've got one of his vacuum cleaners. John Longworth, Sir James was on fire about the ability of British business to prosper, give and leave. Help Sir James with his case. Why will British business do better? Why is the Prime Minister wrong? Well, British business is very innovative, and when we're free of the shackles of the dead carcass, which is the Eurozone, uh, we will do much better. We'll be able to uh, create our own trade deals around the world focused on what's important to the UK economy, which we're prevented from doing at the moment by the European Union. Uh, We will be able to uh, invest the money we save, uh, our contributions, the membership to the club of the uh, European Union is huge. Uh, The net contribution alone is worth half a percent per annum of GDP. And the regulatory costs, if we just shave off 10% of the regulatory costs estimated by our UK finance ministry to be £125 billion a year of costs, that's so 12.5 billion of regulatory costs uh, shaved off 
that overall figure would be another 0.7% per annum of GDP growth. The fact of the matter is that investing our savings uh, in the UK economy and boosting the economy, plus being able to make trade deals around the world, will create a major stimulus for the UK. Can you expand on the idea of creating trade deals around the world in a world that lately, politically, is quite inhospitable to trade? Yeah, well, uh, the first thing to remember, of course, is that the single market, this uh, so-called market of 500 million people in the EU, is a myth. The single market is a protectionist customs union. So it erects around itself barriers to trade. And the, while the tariffs the single market apply, on average, are only 3.6%, in some areas that are important to the UK, uh, inflation and cost structure, they're very high. So, for example, in food, the average tariff is 20%, and in some cases up to 50%. And in clothing and footwear, it's 10%, and in some cases higher. If we're able to remove those tariffs, then we'll be able to get cheaper imports, which will have a downward pressure on inflation and help working people and actually stimulate the economy. Uh, this market, this so-called market, of course, of 500 million people is actually irrelevant other than the fact that it holds us back in the way I've just suggested. Most trade in the world takes place without any trade arrangements whatsoever. All the goods that China sells to the European Union, they sell to us without any trade arrangements. We have a trade surplus with the United States in services that's nearly twice as large as, of the, as the trade surplus we have in services with the European Union. And yet the United States is not, member, uh, not a member of the European single market, nor do we have a trade arrangement with the United States. So trade goes on between businesses and people. Governments just get in the way. They do not trade. So actually, the trade uh, deals are, in some senses, uh, only oiling the wheels. But it would be helpful. It's helpful to have trade arrangements around the world. And at the moment, the European yeah. Union prevents us from doing that. Mm. Uh, another question that arises, and I'm curious uh, about your feelings about this, is uh, you know, we uh, in America look to the United Kingdom, uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England, um, there is a, a lot of talk of a dissolution of the kingdom if uh, Europhiles in Scotland and Wales and uh, Northern Ireland should want to remain affiliated with the EU. Well, I think that's just not going to happen. I mean, we had a referendum in Scotland. Uh, the, uh, the setting up of a referendum, of course, is a decision for the Westminster Parliament in the UK, not for the Scottish Parliament. Uh, we had a referendum. The referendum voted to remain within the Union. Uh, the Scottish Nationalist Party is in a minority now within the Scottish Parliament. Uh, and actually, the luxury of having a referendum on the, European, on the United Kingdom question was really only available to Scotland because we were members of the European Union. If we're not members of the European Union, particularly bearing in mind the downturn in oil prices, which the Scottish... Uh, economy is very dependent on, that the likelihood of a referendum in relation to the United Kingdom is very low if we leave the European Union. John, thank you so much. Your time has been very valuable to us. John Longworth. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.